Father, we sing it just as I am without one plea, but that Christ's blood was shed for me. We think of John the Baptist who cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that you redeemed us, not with silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb. We are eternally grateful, and we look forward, Lord Jesus, to the time when we will see you in your glorified body with the wounds still yet visible above, where we will fall in worship and gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you've done. Thank you, Father, that when you save us, You've given us the deposit, the earnest of the Spirit. Thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, that you are our helper. May you help us today to understand the truth that you inspired through the quill of the Apostle James. Help us not to be just those who hear the Word, but who look intently, like a Not like a man who looks in a mirror, but like more of a woman who looks in a mirror. That's the illustration you gave us in this epistle. Thank you that the law brings liberty and real freedom when we have ears to hear it and the will to apply it. So I pray in this service as we meet in various places in many parts of this country and even in foreign countries as you bring people each week, we're grateful. We pray that the voice of Christ would be heard and not a man's voice that the Word of God would be echoed and reverberated in our souls. So please come and help me and fill me. Thank you that in weakness there is great strength and power, and I bless you for that. In Jesus' holy name, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the epistle of James chapter 3. James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is a book that is just filled and overflowing with practical wisdom. It's a practical book written by a practical man dealing with some very practical issues so that you and I can put it into practice. Now, we are living in an information age, but we are certainly not living in an age of wisdom. We have people who are incredibly successful at making a living, but who are totally failures and bankrupt at how to make a life. And God wants us to make a life a life that would reflect the Lord Jesus and the wisdom that he basically embodied because he was indeed and is forever the embodiment of wisdom. Now, if you're with us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through this short little epistle, and many of us are trying to read it once a week, and we hope to do that until we're finished probably in May or early June. In either case, we have in these recent chapters examined three characteristics of a maturing, growing Christian. If you remember in chapter 1, we saw that a growing Christian is someone who's patient in trouble. In chapter 2, we saw that he is a person who practices the truth. And then in chapter 3, in the first half, we saw that he's an individual who has power over the tongue. And so that's where we want to pick it up as he continues this dialogue on the one who pursues now wisdom. We're going to read six verses. We're going to just look at verses 13 through 18 today. I hope you have a Bible. Follow along with me. James chapter 3, beginning now in verse 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Who among you is wise and understanding? 
Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me just set the context. Some of you are walking into this passage for the first time. If you remember, chapter 3 divides into two sections. In verses 1 through 12, the Apostle James deals with the subject of the tongue. And now in verses 13 through 18, he deals with the topic of wisdom. And really what he's giving us are two tests for leadership. Remember, he's dealing with someone who wants to be a teacher, a pastor, an elder, a leader of sorts in the church. And so if you remember, he began this chapter with a negative exhortation. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so if you were here last time, we saw that he was not speaking against the common responsibility that every Christian is to exercise. By this time, you, you plural, the writer of the Hebrews says, ought to be teachers. There's a common responsibility that as we grow in Christ, there ought to be some basic questions that we can answer and help other people with. It's part of the Great Commission. Neither is he speaking against the stewardship of spiritual gifts when he says, let not many of you become teachers. Because there's this spiritual gift of teaching, and there's this spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. And he is not saying, don't use your gift. In fact, Peter exhorts us as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, we are to exercise that gift. Rather, he's dealing with someone who serves professionally as a pastor, someone who is a professional teacher of the Word of God. And he is simply saying at the start of this chapter, think twice. Make sure that God has called you. Don't be too quick to swell the ranks of those who are to teach because a teacher uses his tongue. And God will, at the judgment of the just, do a careful evaluation of how we used our tongue. It is indeed the tool of the trade. And so with leaders in the church, it is essential that they are called of God. And his lips, what he says, should also match his life. And that's what he's going to focus on in verses 13 through 18. And of course, he is writing to a whole congregation, really to several congregations, to the diaspora, as we saw in the opening verses, to Jews who are scattered about. And so he is broadening the application to every Christian. But our life must match our lips. But initially, he's really giving two tests for those who want to lead God's church. Number one, can I control my tongue? That's test number one. Test number two, am I a person of wisdom and understanding? Suppose you were asked to serve on a team to help find a pastor for your church, and sadly, I get calls from churches, and they say, help me to find a pastor. Well, tell me what your procedure is, and well, we've got someone from the youth group, and someone from the women's ministry, and someone from this, and they're all going together, and they're... That's not how you find a pastor, number one. 
You look for wise, godly elders or in some church polities, deacons who launch the process. The congregation may have a say in the final vote, but you have to have wise people. So if you were part of such a team, what would you look for? Sadly, many times people just look for the years of experience in the ministry or the number of degrees after their name. I know more Dr. Gumballs who are not qualified to do anything when it comes to being a pastor. It's not just having a degree after your name. It's not just that you've been in the ministry for 25 years. The average pastor stays two years in a church. He runs out of his sermons, and so he goes and he preaches them all over again in another church. James would tell us God's not interested in credentials. We might be, but God is interested in character. And he's highlighting two principal areas, the character of the tongue and the character of wisdom. And by wisdom, it's not necessarily directly correlated to how old you are. I've been blown away by some of the young people that I've worked with over the decades who are incredibly mature. And I have equally been blown away by older people who are grossly immature. And so James will make it clear, it's not just indexed to how old you are. It's indexed to how dependent you are, how renewed your mind is, and how much you are willing to obey what you know. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you can see we've divided this into three sections as James divides it. In verse 13, he speaks something about the value of wisdom. In verses 14 through 16, the vices of wisdom. And, uh, and then uh, he will complete it with the virtues of wisdom. So let's start in verse 13 with the value of genuine wisdom. Now, please notice, do not miss how verse 13 is launched with a question. Who among you is wise in understanding? You can almost see him standing up in a congregation. I want to ask you all a question. How many of you are wise? Anyone here this morning wise in understanding? We might think, well, maybe some Bible teacher would stand up, or maybe there would be a buzz in the congregation pointing to one or two people. But in reality, James is asking a very personal question. Are you, you personally, wise and understanding? Now, he knows that no one is going to raise their hand and say, not me, I'm just an idiot. I'll go sit in the back of the classroom and we'll let the wise people respond to you. No, I think he is recognizing that at least the majority of the people might say, hey, look, I may not be as wise as I ought to be, and I certainly don't want to sound presumptuous, but I'm a pretty intelligent people person. I think I've got a grip on things. Now, before we get too far here, let me just say that the words wise and understanding are not repetitive. There are two distinct words with two distinct thoughts. Sometimes you will have words in Scripture that are in the same sentence that reflect each other, not in this particular case. So we want to look at these two words so that we can really ask an answer, not just to James, but to the Lord Himself. Am I a wise and understanding person? 
Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Don't lose, James. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And fan to the left through Job, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, and then you'll come to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. And turn, if you would, to chapter 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 1. And I want you to follow along uh, with what took place on this marvelous occasion when Solomon and the people of Israel come before the Lord. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, you remember him, right? He, uh, I told my physician one time, I said, you're my Bezalel. He said, who's Bezalel? I knew he was a born-again Christian. I said, Bezalel was a man that God had given great skill to. He filled him with the Spirit to be able to craft and make things. I said, you're my Bezalel, and I've been praying for you that you do this surgery correctly. Anyway, he uh, speaks here of the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, and that was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Now, if you know this portion of Scripture, then you know that Solomon is just beginning his reign. And God appears to him and gives him an incredible promise, Solomon, anything you want, just name it. When I was in the sixth grade, my teacher, Miss Courtney, posed a question to the class. She said, if you had just one wish what would you ask for? And she went around the class as we raised our hands, and I said, well, Miss Courtney, I would ask for a million (laughs) dollars. Well, the girl who sat next to me was Ann Teschner, who, unlike me, was raised in a Bible-believing home. And she said, I would ask God for wisdom. And I thought that was the stupidest answer I'd ever heard. I mean, what can you do with wisdom? What can you buy with wisdom? Only later to discover, as I came to Christ, that she was one of the few born-again Christians that I knew. In either case, Solomon does not ask for something out of greed. He asks for wisdom. Notice verses 8 and 9 here of this chapter. Solomon said to God, You have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness. Loving kindness. It's the Greek, it's the Hebrew word kesed. We have a daughter-in-law named kesed. It's difficult to capture with a single English word. People mispronounce it all the time. It's not hesed, it's kesed. Say that, kesed. So when you see my daughter-in-law, her name is kesed, and only a seminary president and a seminary professor would give a child that kind of name. It's a beautiful name. And when we brought her to Israel with us, the Jewish people loved her name. They were just enamored by the fact that she was named Kesed. Well, you have dealt with my father David with great Kesed and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. So before Solomon responds to God's offer of asking for something, he begins by just praising God for his faithfulness. And then in verse 10, he says, give me now wisdom 
in knowledge that I might go out and come in before this people. That's a Hebraic expression that would describe innocence, like a child who is totally dependent. That I might fulfill my duties and in essence be a good king. For who can rule this great people of yours? So while he's not literally a little boy, he is in heart. He's a child in heart. And he asks God for wisdom and knowledge, not the theoretical kind of knowledge that you can uh, evaluate abstract matters with, not issues of the head, but issues of the heart. How do I know that? Because in the parallel text, you might want to put in the margin 1 Kings 3.9 next to verse 10. Let me read 1 Kings 3.9. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. Now remember, this is the king's son. He's intelligent. He's been well-educated and schooled. But he recognized that he needed wisdom, and only God can provide wisdom. Look at verse 11. God said to Solomon, because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed nor those who will come after you. If you study the nature of wisdom in Scripture, a very similar thought when Peter speaks of true knowledge, it's the ability to live life well. It's not just amassing information but it's being able to take that information and to apply it to life. Information and wisdom go together. It's not done in a vacuum. It's based on revelation, but it's based on revelation that God has given in Scripture. You mark it down big and plain and clearly. People who know a lot may be proud. People who have wisdom are humble because they recognize God gave it to them. Look, there are some very incredibly bright people in the history of the world. Einstein was considered a genius when it came to information. But when it came to wisdom, he was absolutely bankrupt. You say, how do you know? Because when he heard the claims of Jesus Christ, he defiantly rejected them. And God said in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And sadly, that man never made it to first base. See, it's not a matter of the fact that you may be a genius in the world's eyes. Jesus made this distinction, if you remember, when he compared his own disciples with the highly educated Pharisees of his day in Luke chapter 10. They were well-schooled in history and theology and in language more than just about any other single group of people in all of Israel. And Jesus in his prayer said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, speaking of the Pharisees in the context, and have revealed them to infants, speaking of his disciples. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And so like 
Solomon who pictured himself like a child. Jesus here uses a similar idiom of an infant. People who do not rely upon themselves, but who are totally dependent on God. And so again, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. Wisdom and understanding. That's something the Pharisees did not have. They didn't really have genuine understanding. And interestingly, the Hebrew word for understanding is a word related to shamar. It literally means a hearing heart. We've spoken in recent weeks in our basic discipleship series about the shema, the verb hear, hear, O Israel. And so the, the word that is used in both Greek and Hebrew is in reference to somebody who has a hearing heart. And that's what they didn't have. They were educated, but they didn't have a hearing heart. Unlike the fishermen, who for the most part were uneducated, they had the ability to hear. Now, go back to James. I know that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but an important one. James chapter 3. He is asking the question, who among you is wise and understanding? And again, those two words might sound redundant, but they are not. The word understanding, it's actually found only once in all the New Testament right here. But as you study it in literature outside of the New Testament, you discover that it refers to someone who is highly skilled in the practicing of their particular skill. And so when James says, who among you is wise and understanding, he responds by answering his own question. He says, all right, show me. Show me if you're wise and understanding. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Now, please consider with me the value, value that the Apostle James places on wisdom and understanding. He doesn't say, who among you is rich? He doesn't say, who among you is famous? Who among you are successful? Who among you are well-educated? Who among you are popular? Who among you are ambitious? But who among you are wise? and understanding. And we need to put the premium where God puts it. Now, up until this time, if you remember, wisdom has only been mentioned once in James chapter 1 and verse 5. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We saw contextually, you're going through a trial of life, And it's in the midst of a trial that we are to crowd to God for wisdom. God, what are you trying to accomplish in this trial? Now, certainly you could apply the principle to other realms, but that's its principle application in its original context. But when we can understand the difference between wisdom and just knowledge or information, then we can understand why so many people are on the broad road that leads to destruction and so few or in the narrow road that leads to life. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have a record of Christ's life. Then you have the Acts of the Apostles, which is the record of the first 30 years of church history. Then you have Romans, which is really the great constitution of the Christian faith. And then you come to 1 Corinthians. And turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you know anything about the Corinthians, they're Greeks. And the Greeks place great, great um, confidence and premium on the kind of wisdom that they possessed. 
And Paul's going to contrast the kind of wisdom that the Greeks were known for and the kind of wisdom that really pleases God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. When you preach the cross to people, when you speak about the truth of God's plan of salvation, many will consider it foolishness. I was with my son yesterday. I'm sorry I missed the work day. It's the only one, as far as I know, I've missed in 30 years. But we had to change the date for one reason or another, and I had a meeting. And nonetheless, I was with my son Jordan yesterday, and we encountered this couple. As it turns out, I said, hey, by the way, James, where do you go to church? And he told us, and I knew the church and knew its original pastor who'd been there for 30-some years. And I said, oh, that's a great church. And, and then she chided in about this Presbyterian church she went to. I said, oh, I said, is that a um, PCA church, meaning Presbyterian Church of America, which at least historically have been the conservative Bible-believing Presbyterians, so they are struggling right now. Uh, in either case, she said, mm, she kind of went on, and I said, well, I said, uh, I, I, are they Bible-believing? I don't want to get into that. I said, okay, and so we went on with the conversation, and at some point I said, no, I didn't mean to be offensive. Oh, no, I'm not offended. I said, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the stripe says Presbyterian or Baptist or whatever it might be. The main thing, and I articulated the plan of salvation, that we've come to a point in our life where we admit we are bankrupt and helpless, and we need to be forgiven because our sin is wrong and offensive, and God wants to forgive it and change it, and He can only do it through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so she immediately, as a Presbyterian, because the more liberal a church gets, the more typically liturgical they get, well, you know, Lent is so important to me. I said, well, Lent is important. It's really an opportunity to reflect and to think about what the Lord Jesus did in these days leading up to the cross and why He died and so on and so forth. And, but you see, her mind went to religious activity, to the things that you do to merit salvation, where the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to people, brings us to the substitutionary death of Christ. And so he quotes the prophet Isaiah here in verse 19. You'll see the textual change in all caps, showing you it's an Old Testament quotation, this case from Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Then he asks in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For a sense in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
In fact, he, he gives a summary statement of God's assessment of the world's way of thinking in chapter 3. In chapter 3, in verse 19, across the page, or you might have to flip it in some of your Bibles, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. What a contrast between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. Man's wisdom is foolishness to God. God's wisdom is foolishness to man. Man's wisdom comes from reason. God's wisdom comes from divine revelation. Worldly wisdom will lead you to nothing. In fact, it will lead you to an eternity without the living God, where God's wisdom will allow you to endure life forever. And so notice in verse 19 here in chapter 3, he now quotes Job, for it is written, he, God, is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now hold that thought and go back here to the book of James chapter 3. James is asking a penetrating question. Are you a wise person? And then he would simply respond, don't tell me, show me. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So James is saying that it's not just a person's words, but a person's works that show whether or not he has genuine wisdom. And if you have the real wisdom, if you have heavenly wisdom, then it ought to express itself in at least two ways. And so now he gives two very concrete examples of a man who is truly wise because it will be reflected both in demeanor and in its behavior. So let's first consider genuine wisdom is seen in its behavior in its behavior. Look again now in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds. Now, if you're using the old King James, it does not say good behavior. It says good conversation. Because in the 17th century, the word conversation referred to one's lifestyle. So back in the 1600s, you might say, he has a good conversation meaning he's a good man or she's a good woman. The new King James renders it good conduct, and this is why there's a need for a modern literal translation of the Bible. But this word that is translated here, good behavior, is found actually 13 times in the New Testament, and in every instance, it does not refer to your talk, but to your walk. But let me just say as a side note, our walk is not to be separated from our talk. So you can see through the etymology of the word how it gravitated to its current day meaning. But don't miss the point. If you want to see if a person is wise, start by looking at his deeds because real wisdom will express itself in good behavior or as some translations say, good conduct. When the Lord Jesus' life is summarized in Acts chapter 10, it's recorded, he went about doing good. And so here's James's point. It's not a matter of the mind. It's not a matter of how clever you are. It's a matter of the life. It's a matter of how good you are. He's not interested simply in what you say. He's also interested in what you do. And so the first mark of a wise person is not how high your IQ is or how sharp or keen your sense of humor is or how impressive one's delivery is or how many Bible studies they attend, or how many languages they know. No, the real mark of wisdom 
is good behavior, good conduct. God links the two repeatedly in Scripture. Just read the book of Proverbs. And many of you, you're new to the faith and you maybe have been challenged to read the chapter in Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. So this is the 14th, so you'd read Proverbs 14. But as you read through Proverbs, you see that habitually God contrasts the way of the wise with the way of a fool. And so Proverbs describes a wise man as one who will flee far from sexual immorality. He will describe a wise man as one who works hard and like the ant, he stores up and he provides for his own. He will say a wise man is one who wins souls. Repeatedly, true wisdom is linked to to a certain kind of behavior. And so sometimes we say even, uh, oh, he got out of jail for good behavior. Well, not exactly the same thing, but we're basically saying he kept his nose clean. But again, what I want you to see is he is saying a wise person, if he's really wise, is going to show up not just with his words, but his works. Now, I see some people, and interesting, this word behavior, let me just say parenthetically, is a, a Greek word that returns that refers to someone who, who gets away, but he returns back. He gets away, but he returns back. There, there is, there's a commitment to trying to stay close to the Lord. I was watching this lady in my neighborhood, and uh, that's an unusual leash, and, you know, the dog would go out and then get out so far, and it just kind of gets sucked right back in. And uh, at first, I wasn't sure who was walking who for a second, but they have these, you know, fancy uh, leashes that they have. Well, the concept behind this word is that um, it's someone who is not straining against the leash, but trying to respond to the leash. When God shows them that they're off a little bit, they want to pull back. They are an individual that is not on the world's leash, but is on God's leash and trying to walk in good behavior. Now, James has already said we all stumble in many ways. But this is a person who habitually yields to the authority of Scripture. They're trying to walk as close to the master as they can. So first, there's genuine wisdom as seen in behavior. Secondly, genuine wisdom as seen in its demeanor. Let's think about, for just a moment, genuine wisdom as seen in its demeanor. Look at verse 13 now. Again, I'll read the whole verse all the way to the end this time. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior in his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom." So here in verse 13, James speaks of our deeds being done in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, this word for gentleness is the same word that's used in James 1.21 that was translated humble. And so we are exhorted to receive God's word in that verse in humility in James 1.21. But it's interesting that while there are hundreds and hundreds of verses that really describe the life of Christ, there's just one place where he describes himself. Most of you know it. It's found in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Same word James uses. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus used this same word in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the gentle, 
The old King James says the meek. Most translations today say, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. When we hear the word gentleness, sometimes we uh, associate it with meekness. And meekness is typically associated in most people's minds today, at least, with weakness. And so we think of some, you know, Sam Milktoast that is spineless and, you know, kind of spiritless kind of individual. But that's not how it's used in Scripture. In fact, it's used in just the opposite way. It was used outside of the New Testament of a horse that was high-spirited, but had been brought under control through a harness. It was used outside of Scripture of a teacher who was powerful and dogmatic, but at the same time, he would not get angry with his students. It was used by the Greeks of a, of a gentle, warm fire versus a fire that was destructive and out of control. It was used of a gentle breeze where there's just the right amount of wind at just the right, for the right amount of time, making it very pleasant versus a breeze that is out of control that becomes a tornado or a hurricane. It was used in medicine of a doctor who gave just the right dose to bring about healing rather than disaster or death. And so James is describing not some weak person, but a strong person whose strength has been harnessed. It's typified, of course, in the Lord Jesus. There on the cross, Peter will remind us, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. You want to see someone with power under control, just look at Golgotha. He laid his life down. He could have called legions of angels from heaven but he yielded himself. Paul will say in Philippians that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, same word, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And of course, his example is prefaced by these words, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there are some people who can accomplish even a good deed but in the process, they destroy everyone who's in their path. And one of the problems sometimes with a new believer is that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And in their zeal, they, they want to win their friends and their family to Christ. And in the process, they just crush them. They don't do it with gentleness. Peter would tell us, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a decision to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you, and yet, he says, with gentleness and reverence. Likewise, Paul said to young Timothy, his protege in the faith, his young pastor whom he had discipled in his last will and testament in 2 Timothy 2, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, same word, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The Lord's bondservant, he must be kind, patient when wronged, with gentleness. And it's only this kind of wise behavior that can potentially keep people from the snare of the devil. Listen, you can have all the facts, 
But if you don't have the wisdom on how to share those facts, you can do a lot of great harm. So it's not just your deeds, it's deeds with gentleness, gentleness and wisdom. So true wisdom, genuine wisdom, is both good and it's gentle. Now, remember here in verse 13, he began with a question. Are you a wise person? And his answer is very simple. If you are demonstrating power under control, and the person who may call himself wise and understanding is indeed describing himself rightly if these two visible characteristics are true. Good behavior and gentleness. Now, that's the value of genuine wisdom. Let's go a little bit further and look at the vices of worldly wisdom now in verses 14 through 16, the vices of worldly wisdom. And here, again, we find two critical characteristics. First, he underscores that earthly wisdom will be seen in its motives. So let's consider earthly wisdom as it's seen in its motives. Look now, if you will, at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. So there are two basic motives that drive a person who is unwise, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And these are motives that are hidden in the heart. Jealousy and selfish ambition are issues of the heart. Biblically speaking, your heart is the place that represents the essence of who you are. And that's why Paul can tell the Romans that when you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the heart is not only the place where faith resides, the Bible equally affirms that the heart is the place where sin resides. And so Jesus in Matthew 15 says, in describing the origin of sin, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Now, let's for a moment remove the intervening vices that are described and read it. But if you have in your heart, you see, critical to our understanding of what James is referring here is the verb to have, because it's a verb tense in the original that describes someone who is harboring and fostering, who is nursing as a way of life, either one of these two vices. And so he mentions here bitter jealousy, and this describes a person who though, even though their hands are full, when they look at other people, there's a yearning, a jealousy to have what they have. And so again, it's an issue of motive. Now, no one goes around and says, well, typically anyway, I'm a jealous person. But a person, of course, who wants to be a leader can't be driven by selfish ambition. If they are a person who is habitually threatened by the blessings and the giftedness of other people, they're not qualified to be a leader. They want to identify those people and loose them with their gifts so they can use them for the kingdom. Now notice the second motive that's closely associated beyond bitter jealousy. He also mentions selfish ambition. And again, both of these are in the heart. They may not openly admit it. They may not come around and say, my ambition is get to get to the top. 
Now, no one really says that. Now, you might be asking yourself, do Christians do these kinds of things? Do they contend with each other? Do they compare, you know, business cards and job titles? Do they take note of neighborhoods and automobiles and houses? Do they compare parenting or maybe grandparenting skills? Are there rivalries in the church for prominence? Do Christians try to get their own way? And of course, the answer is yes. That's who he's writing to. Yes, the nature of selfish ambition is rooted in the heart. It's the desire to be seen. It's the desire and the drive to be first. It may look like a spiritual zeal, but it's someone who's on an ego trip. The Pharisees, if you remember, they were spiritually zealous people. But when Jesus summarized what they were like, he said they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Oh, we should be zealous for our service in the Lord, but not to exalt self and to rob God of his glory and his honor, but to exalt the living God. In addition to its motives, earthly wisdom also is seen in its character. It's seen in its character. Such impure motives produce three characteristics that are spelled out here now in verse 15. I have them underlined in my Bible. This wisdom, what he just described in verse 14, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. First, he tells us it is earthly, which simply means that the wisdom of this world shuts out and it limits the focus of what happens in this life to this life only. It is earthbound. It views everything from a horizontal perspective instead of from a vertical perspective. Do you think our governmental leaders are asking God, what would please you? What does Holy Scripture say? No, from within a fallen heart, they're saying, what do we want? And sadly, this spirit, more and more, has entered into the evangelical churches in America. And if I get another piece of literature or email telling me how to market the church, I think I'm going to literally throw up. Sermons are no longer biblio-centered. They are man-centered, both in their length and in their content so as not to offend people. Sometimes I think we have too many people, and I say, Lord, I'll just preach a little bit longer, we'll find out who's really interested. It's earthbound. And so we dropped Moody Bible Institute and Moody Radio because they said it's okay to smoke, drink, and gamble in moderation. That's earthbound wisdom. No wonder God has disciplined that institution. It's very, very sad to see a movement that God once used mightily, and it could happen to us if we do not keep our guard up. There were some great churches in this very town once that sent missionaries to preach the gospel to foreign lands that today are dead What he writes here is almost as surprising as when earlier in James 2 and verse 19, he speaks of demons who have faith. Remember that? The demons believe that God is one. Demons have faith, and the world has wisdom. 
The problem is, is that the object of demonic faith is not the living God, and the object of worldly wisdom is not the revelation of God, and so it's doomed to fail. The wisdom of this world might sound good and right and logical. Twice over in Proverbs, Solomon will write, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's not many times when the identical verse is repeated in the Bible, much less in Proverbs, but this is one because God wants to underscore its truth. Earth views life from the perspective of the here and now. God views life from the perspective of eternity. He takes the long view. He takes the kingdom view. This wisdom is not that which comes down from the above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. You see the second word there, natural. Sukikos, we get our word psychology, our word psyche from it. The old King James renders it sensual, but today the word sensual has a nuance of eroticism to it but it didn't in the 17th century. Sensual referred simply to someone operating out of their senses. And that's why we say natural here. It's the way people naturally respond. In Jude, in verse 19, he tells us a natural man is one who is devoid of the Holy Spirit, and he creates divisions. Paul, likewise, will write to the Corinthians and say, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. That's why Jesus said, neither can a man enter or see, comprehend wisdom, the kingdom of God, until he is born from above. But the natural man just operates on the basis of his senses. And until we are made alive in Christ, he may talk about spiritual things like that lady yesterday about Lent, but the more she spoke, how obvious it was she had never met the Lord. And we prayed for her. We're praying for her conversion. Obviously, her husband married an unbeliever. And I don't know the whole history behind it. But, you know, people can have their spiritual experiences and all these other things. And when you preach the gospel, they take offense. Paul will say, in lieu of worldly wisdom, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we read it already, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Many of the Jews in Paul's day could not get past the crucifixion because their Messiah was not going to be crucified. They just wanted the picture of Messiah where he would rule and reign with a rod of iron. But that's the second coming of the Messiah. And Gentiles could not get past the fact that a God could somehow at the hands of men die. That was a total absurdity to them. So for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But today not wanting to be offensive all across America. We are preaching Christ the moral man. We are preaching Christ the ideal teacher. We are preaching Christ the positive thinker. We are preaching Christ the good example. They are preaching a different Jesus, to use Paul's words, a Jesus that basically allows you to get whatever you want and allow you to live however you choose in churches, all across America are taking the gospel out of the gospel, 
to speak of someone who is bearing wrath and punishment because God is a God of wrath who will punish sin is offensive. And so what do they speak about today in churches? You know what the number one preaching topic in America is right now? Global warming. Global warming. I hope you caught what the Pope said. I actually, I didn't want to misquote the man. He said, and I quote, the biblical flood, according to experts, is a mythical tale. The flood is an historical tale. So the Pope says that experts say it didn't happen. And if they say it didn't happen, then it didn't happen. And then he goes on and he says, and I quote, a great flood perhaps due to a rise in temperature and the melting of the glaciers is what will happen now if we continue along the same path. Well, number one, he denies the historicity of Scripture. We have studied in our series on the Revelation, he denies that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He denies the promise that God put in the sky that he will never flood the world again. And so we have these, you should pray for the Pope that he would find Christ as his Savior. He needs Christ desperately. He's a lost man leading hundreds of millions of people. But the number one topic is global warming. The second most preached topic is critical race theory that has nothing to do with racism. What a distorted view these people are presenting. And the other is social justice that has nothing to do with biblical justice. But you see, the finite mind, no matter how brilliant, and by the way, I'm going to preach on this before too long, so hold on to your seats. By the time we're done with James, I'm going to address some of these issues. No matter how brilliant your mind may be, it is still finite, and it cannot comprehend the infinite. Now, don't get me wrong. God is not depreciating learning. God doesn't put a premium on ignorance. When my mechanic fixes my brakes, I want to make sure he knows what he's doing so when I press the pedal, the car stops. When my physician cuts me open, I want to been assured he went to medical school and I'm not his first victim. Listen, you get knowledge. You can have all kinds of knowledge without having wisdom. So we need wisdom or, again, what Peter calls true knowledge. The wisdom the world has to offer is not that which comes from above. It's earthly. It's natural. Look at the third description. It's demonic. For the wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Satan, he's the father of demons. What did he attempt to do? He attempted to exalt himself above the throne of God. That's what made the devil the devil. And that's what earthly wisdom does. It's on an ego trip. It's, a, it's the process of self-exaltation. In 1 John 5, 19, listen to what the world values. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world that we live in is in the power of the evil one. The devil is giving us demonic wisdom. In the end of time, in the latter days, not the last days, but latter times, there will be doctrines of demons. I want to tell you what is happening in our nation. 
There is no human explanation. These are doctrines of demons that are unfolding. And the devil is the one who's energizing the world system. And at the end of time, the Scripture teaches the church will begin to apostatize. The great apostasy will happen after the rapture. But the church will lose its saltiness. It will lose its ability to dispel darkness as a bright light. doesn't mean we have to become that way. Look at the seven churches of the Revelation. Jesus highlighted one church, and he said, because the rapture could have happened at any moment, he said, you'll not go through that time of tribulation that's going to come on the whole world because they were very different, but there's a parallel between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. He came into a very dark world. He's going to come back to a very dark world. I heard of a pastor years ago in Irwin, North Carolina, at the Porter's Baptist Church who thought he would try to apply some reverse psychology on some of his members who needed to be more faithful. So he came to church and he dressed up as Satan. I mean, he had a devil's suit on with a pitchfork and the whole nine yards. And then he had a sign around his neck that said, do not attend this church. And there he stood with a pitchfork, a sign around his neck saying absolutely nothing. And people came in and they, they saw him and some were nervous and frightened and some children started to cry and others asked him to identify himself and one deacon had just had enough and he called the sheriff. And when the police asked him to remove his mask, much to their shock, it was the pastor. Now let me tell you, what's more frightening to me is not a pastor in a devil's suit, but it's the devil in a pastor's suit. And we have a lot of them. Paul warned us of such things. He says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, if his pastors, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan can come to church. He can even preach from the pulpit. And what's so sad today is people lack basic biblical knowledge. Look, a Christian can be persuaded in the wrong direction. Even Peter, I know it's pre-Pentecost, pre-regeneration, but on one occasion, if you remember, he embraced an idea that was not from above, it was from below, and God had to say, get behind me, Satan. So James is writing to people who are born again, people who have made a profession of faith in Christ and have generally met the living Lord, and he is teaching them how we should act and how we should think. But again, this kind of demonic wisdom is entering the churches all across America. Someone called up on the Bible line on Tuesday, and they wanted to know what I thought about Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore. I want proof. I said, look, I'm not going to spend my time on the Bible line going through. The, listen to some of my sermons. I said, go to ReformationCharlotte.org. They document the whole thing. But I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me. This was a lady calling on behalf of her church because all these women were studying Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Are we so ignorant in America and so lacking basic biblical discernment that we cannot see frauds and fakes? And now we have entering into evangelicalism a new form of... Uh, 
softness on the homosexual movement. We say, well, someone can be a homosexual, have same-sex attraction. They don't need to repent of it as long as they are a celibate homosexual. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, recently said this. He said, if a transgender person came into our church, came into my life, I think my predisposition would be to refer to them by their preferred pronouns. And he goes on and he describes of our need to use hospitable pronouns towards transgender people. Look, I don't hate transgender people. But I think if Jesus were here, he would say, have you not read that God created the male and female? That there's no such thing as a transgender person? And I've had people tell me, look, I've got a granddaughter who's transgender or this or that, and they want me to use, you know, these hospitable pronouns. I said, do not do it. You love them, but you do not compromise because you'll make them twice a son or daughter of hell. God uses His law as a standard, as a tutor to lead people to faith in Christ. And when God created you, He either created you with XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. He didn't create you with XXY chromosomes or XYX chromosomes. And now they tell me there's over 100 genders. Good night. Can you even believe it? This is total absurdity. This is what happens to a nation when we turn from God. When a church, when a denomination, when a home, when an individual adopts the world's wisdom, look at verse 16. Here's the fruit. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Is it any wonder that so many good churches and denominations have split because they cease to operate under God's wisdom? And this is the devil's plan to get Bible preaching out of the pulpit, to give sermonettes to Christianettes, to give people 15-minute feel-good sermons rather than to really feed their soul with truth. And so instead of pastors feeding the sheep, we're entertaining the goats on Sunday morning, and God is heartbroken. And sometimes churches split over this. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 11, and sometimes it's a good thing to split. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, he said, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. We usually think of, you know, factions and splits among Christians, you know, over just little small problems. And, you know, I mean, Christians, they're, they're all over the map on, should I wear a mask? Should I wear two masks? Should I wear no mask? And we're going to fight each other, and we're, we're against each other like this instead of looking outward and thinking about winning the world to Jesus. But sometimes factions are good in a church when they're doctrinal factions, when there's a departure from the truth, because Paul reminds us that in the process of that faction, God will show those who are really His. And some of you have come from churches where there has been a low premium on scriptural teaching. And that only fosters worldly wisdom. 
Instead of being peace in the church, there's these internal battles. There's no real joy, and, and no one ever finds Jesus as Lord. And if you've been in that kind of assembly, you know that the testimony that they have among themselves and in the community are often absolutely terrible. Now, let me just finish one more. Beyond the value of genuine wisdom, beyond the vices of worldly wisdom, I want to conclude with the virtues of heavenly wisdom. The virtues of heavenly wisdom. And again, he describes wisdom on two levels. He describes both its origin and its character. So let's start with heavenly wisdom as seen in its origin. Beginning now in verse 17, God gives eight characteristics of the wisdom from above, or what we would call heavenly wisdom. And if you have a heart for God, if you've been born from above, your heart will be crying out as we read through this list, God, make these things true in my life. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Notice it begins with a strong contrastive but. He's contrasting worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. He's describing how the wisdom whose origin is from above is something that the Spirit of God gives. However, if you want this kind of wisdom, as James has already told us, you cannot be a double-minded person. And so if you make peace with sin, if you become friends of the world's values, of the world's wisdom, you will never see these kinds of things worked out in your life. Notice first in the list, he says, first pure. And by the way, the word that he uses for first in Greek, there are different words that are translated first. It's not first simply first on the list, but first in priority. Because God knows if this first issue, pure, or you could render it holy, is not true, then none of the rest can follow. And so he speaks of purity. And the Greek word is used to describe uh, someone who shrinks away from something. God wants us to treat sin the way you would treat garbage. You don't put garbage in your living room. You put it outside of the house. You don't put garbage in your heart. You flee from it. You stay far away from it. You are willing to apply Philippians 4.8, the things that are true and right and honorable and pure, as the standard by the things you will watch and view and let your heart and mind sink on. Teenagers and college students, listen. I spoke to a college student just last week, and I said, it's going to cost you. It's only going to get lonelier. It's not going to get easier. We need to be preparing our children and our grandchildren for persecution because it's coming. And not only do we have the Equality Act headed our way on a federal level, we have people in this state who want to produce an Equality Act for South Carolina, and we had better be on our toes there's nothing equal about the Equality Act. It's oppressive. And unless you buy into transgenderism and, and homosexuality and lesbianism and a host of other things, then there'll be consequences. What a world. 
The wisdom from above is first pure. You can't live in an impure world and expect God to give you purity. And I say live in an impure world. That is embrace those kinds of things. Notice also it is peaceable. The wisdom from above is peaceable. And sadly, pastors all across America are now performing gay marriages or they endorse soft homosexuality, what I just told you, where you can embrace gayness as long as you don't act on it. That's just one step away. It's like medical marijuana. You know, that's coming up in South Carolina in the next week or so. You know, our own senator here in Buford, every time he stands up there on the floor, he pushes medical marijuana. And 10 days ago, every sheriff in the state met and 100% were opposed. And 76% of the medical doctors in this state are opposed to it. Medical marijuana, it's always a stepping stone into recreational marijuana. And Colorado now wishes they could undo what they've done. What a mess that state is. But no, we don't want to upset people. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this word peaceable means that you're not a contentious person, but it doesn't mean that you don't stand for truth, and that in the process of standing for truth, there will be some people who will hate you. So again, he's describing heavenly wisdom. Peaceable, look at the next word, gentle, gentle. It's a different word that's been used by James. It's a word that refers to someone who is other-centered. Some English translations render this considerate. I grew up in a home. My mother, who's 93 years old, I mean, we went to the beach, we went to some public park, and we couldn't leave that place without picking up the grounds before we left. And I still, I brought my kids to the beach, and we'd, you know, police the whole area and get the trash, and, and we'd throw it away. I can't go into a McDonald's wherever I'm eating and, and not clean up the table after me, or even go into the restroom sometimes and wipe down the counter. And yet we witnessed recently someone in a fast food, and they gave them fries instead of coleslaw, and they just came unglued. There's a willingness to yield. There's a consideration for other people. Kind of like when you leave the parking lot on Sunday morning, right? We yield to each other. Hmm. In James's day, it was used in military context of someone who would yield to a superior officer. It's also used outside of Scripture of a child who would submit to his parents' authority. Notice further, full of mercy or uh, reasonable, someone who's reasonable or considerate. And then he says, full of mercy and good fruits, full of mercy and good fruits. By nature, we can be harsh, we can be cynical, but God wants us to be full of mercy and good fruits. And this word mercy is an interesting word. It's a particular Greek word that describes someone that you're merciful towards who created the problem themselves. See, it's really easy to be merciful towards someone when they've been ripped off or abused by the culture, and we all want to jump in and be kind. But you know, the guy's a drunk. He's ruined his life. He's let him sleep in his own vomit. See, James is saying no. 
The kind of mercy, the kind of compassion you could render it that way that we're speaking about is not let that drunk sleep in his vomit, but that drunk is a man for whom Christ died. And if he could find the Lord, he could be changed and he could be a new person. It's the opposite of worldly wisdom that creates every evil thing. Mercy results in good fruits. Mercy is having compassion towards someone, trying to not just feel their need, but to meet their needs. Six, it's unwavering, which may sound contradictory to reasonable. You could translate it without partiality, without favoritism. It's describing not someone who's stubborn, but it's describing someone who has a conviction. He has a fixed principle based on the Word of God, and he's not going to move from that. He's not going to put his finger in the air and ask, what do people want? And finally, he says, without hypocrisy. Hupokritos, we get our word hypocrite from it. You know, in the Greek days, they didn't change uniforms or clothes. In a play, they would just change masks, a smiling mask, a sad mask. And he's basically saying that someone who's without hypocrisy does not pretend to be someone they are not. And so he concludes, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Simply said, a wise person sows this kind of seed and his harvest is a harvest of righteousness. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. If you really want to know if you are a wise man or a woman, Let God show you your fruit. You say, Pastor, I want this kind of wisdom. I do too, and I want to deepen it and grow further in it. How does this become real? Let me share some applications as we close. Number one, wisdom is given to those who are willing to practice it. Wisdom is given to those who are willing to practice it. Wisdom is not automatically given. It's given to those who are willing to practice it. It's not something that just kind of floats down from on high and all of a sudden you're wise. It's imparted, one, through a renewal of the mind. You you look at the perfect law of liberty. You look intently in the mirror of God's Word. But you don't just look. You're willing to apply what God shows you. And the only way for that to happen is for the Spirit of God to fill you. But the Spirit of God will not fill you if you are not first pure. You're not willing to be holy. You're not willing to obey the living God because He will not fill a dirty vessel. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And the condition, if you remember in the Greek construction, is since all of us lack wisdom, we need to ask God for it. But if you ask God for it, get ready, because he may plow up the ground a little bit. He may yank out some of the weeds, and it may hurt. But in the end, it will all be worth it. Secondly, wisdom is not for the curious, but it belongs to the serious. It's not for the curious, it belongs to the serious. I didn't mean to rhyme, but it did. You see, wisdom is not automatically given to those who would like to have it. It's given to those who cannot live without it. How badly do you want wisdom? Solomon wrote, 
Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And then finally, wisdom can only be given to those who are born again. Only the Holy Spirit can produce this kind of wisdom, and we'll see that before we're done with James. But without being born again, you don't even have the Holy Spirit. He has to live in you, and for him to live in you, you have to receive Jesus as Lord. And God the Father wants you to be forgiven. He invites you to be forgiven. God the Son gave his blood so you could be forgiven. But you must call upon him in faith. Father, we thank you this morning for the promise of your son when he said, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, you said that we are to take your yoke to learn from you because you are gentle and humble of heart, and then you will give us true rest for our souls, whatever the circumstances around us may be doing. Now, Father, I have no doubt there's someone within the sound of my voice who's listening, who's never received Christ, give them the courage today to call upon Jesus, to humble themselves and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And I know many have already crossed that line who are listening. And as we pour over these few short verses, because you've made us new creatures, our heart just cries out. Make this so real for us, for the glory and honor of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.